Our second scripture this morning is from the book of Genesis, the 28th chapter, beginning with the 10th verse and extending to the 19th verse. Once again, listen to God's word for us. Jacob came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And there he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called that place Bethel. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. The house that uh, my wife Meredith and I rented the first year that we were in Kansas City for her residency at the children's hospital there was in an old neighborhood of the city called Brookside. The house had a lot of quirky features like a lot of old houses and my favorite one was the front patio. It was about 50 feet across, 15 feet or so deep, concrete painted bright red. <laughs> and the paint uh, made it so that it was kind of slick when it rained so you had to be careful. And uh, one night I came home from the grocery store with paper grocery bags that were packed a little too full and I came up those steps a little too enthusiastically and the bottom of one of those bags gave out and the glass bottle of extra virgin olive oil, the big one, the 33.8 ounce bottle, broke through the bottom of the bag, shattered on impact and spread a slick of oil all over that red concrete patio. I spent the next hour or so trying to clean the oil off of the paint and concrete muttering cursing under my breath the whole time. What occurs to me today in light of the story that we just heard is that I might have been viewing that situation all wrong. Rather than cursing the poor construction of the grocery bag or my own clumsiness, I should have been celebrating. Perhaps what happened there wasn't an accident. Maybe it was an anointing. <laughs> Jacob stands up a big old rock for a pillar and he pours oil all over it. To anoint it. Anointing happens quite a lot in the Bible. It's a thing that is done to kings. It's done to prophets. People who are in need of healing are anointed. Anointing is a, an important biblical symbol. 
The word anointed is actually the literal meaning of the word Christ. And so for us as Christians, anointing makes up a major part of who we understand Jesus to have been, and by extension, who we understand ourselves to be. Anointing somebody sets them apart for a particular task or calling. It designates them as holy. And as our story demonstrates, things and places can also be anointed. It has the same purpose. Anointing a place renders it holy and sets it apart for a special purpose. Anointing a place transforms it from being just some place to being this place. Anointing turns a place into a sanctuary. So Jacob anoints this pillar and the first people to hear tell of this story would immediately know that place as the sanctuary of Bethel or house of God. Bethel was an important Israelite sanctuary for a long, long time and this appears to be its origin story. The story says that the place that you know as a sanctuary was not always thus. There was a time when our special place was just some place. Every sanctuary has an origin story. This sanctuary where we are met in person and online this morning has an origin story. We rehearse it once a year on the Sunday in May that we call Dedication Commemoration Sunday, remembering the day in 1914 when this building became our church's sanctuary when it held its first worship service. Before this sanctuary was built, this place at the intersection of Delaware and Pine Street, now Michigan Avenue, was just a marshy kind of place with some boarding houses and a few new mansions popping up here and there. But the story is told here, Matt wrote about this a couple years ago for our sesquicentennial in a way that was very helpful. As a condition of accepting the call to become the new pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church, a young preacher named John Timothy Stone dictated that a new sanctuary for the church should be built here in this space. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that, that this place with its ceilings, stained glass, its, its organ and font, it's pulpit, this place where we baptize infants as well as adults, where we solemnize our friends and where we sing hymns and say prayers, rehearse the story of the faith week after week, this place, this sanctuary was just some place. Well, I for one am glad that this place is this place for us and for everybody who comes here because people have always needed sanctuaries. People will always need sanctuaries. Each week, for us, this is a sanctuary. We come into a kind of space and a kind of time in here that's marked off as special or different than all of the other times and spaces that we might inhabit throughout the week. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing in here that captions this distinction for me. Its middle two verses explain, here are symbols to remind us of our lifelong need of grace. Here, our table, font, and pulpit. Here, the cross has central place. Here, in honesty of preaching, in silence as in speech. Here, in newness and renewal, God the Spirit comes to each. Here, our children find a welcome in the shepherd's flock and fold. Here, as bread and wine are taken, Christ sustains us as of old. Here, 
the servants of the servants seek in worship to explore what it means in daily living to believe and to adore. We need this place here. I need this place here. But there is more that happens in this space than worship that makes it a sanctuary, designates it for a holy purpose to all who enter it. The stories will surely never all be told of all the women and men, all of the children, all of the people who have come through these doors, who've come through the doors of the Gratz Center, who've come through the doors of the Loggia, looking to find some form of sanctuary. Sanctuary from all kinds of things, sanctuary from the weather, sanctuary from hunger, thirst, sanctuary from loneliness, sanctuary from doubt, sanctuary from violence, sanctuary from God only knows what. People literally find sanctuary in this space for going on seven months or so now, the Morse Lounge has provided some measure of sanctuary to hundreds of migrants from Central America through the work of our social service center, through the donations of many of you. It was estimated in May that over 10,000 people have arrived in Chicago since August of last year. Hotels like the one next door here on Chestnut, park districts, community centers, they've all been converted and will continue to be converted to short-term emergency shelters for people who have fled their homes are and in desperate life and death need of sanctuary. And the city, we as a city, are trying to provide it. Many of those folks have walked through the doors of this building. And for every one of those people, as well as for every one of the people across all of the years that have found themselves within these walls for as long as they've been standing, this space has served a holy function that neither we nor they will ever fully know. Somebody once asked me if Fourth Church would still exist without the sanctuary. I had to think about that. I think that it surely would. After all, there were two other Fourth Church sanctuaries before this one, and there have been seasons when this church has had to do without its sanctuary, seasons of tragedy like fire, like COVID and seasons of growth like construction. So I think that it would, most definitely. But I also think that the sanctuary is a major part of who the church is and what we are called to be about in the world today because people still need sanctuary. And people still know, I think, when they see a church that they can expect to find some sanctuary within it. Jacob, from our story, Jacob needs sanctuary. When we meet him in this story, he's alone. He's vulnerable. He's probably terrified. He has fled his home and he's stumbling toward a future that he's not choosing for himself. And among the things that Jacob needs sanctuary from is himself, from his own actions and the consequences that those actions have had for him and for other people. And in a vision, a vision from the God who called to his parents and his grandparents, Jacob is given sanctuary. Jacob is given to know that he's already in a sanctuary and he didn't even know it. And even though he's going to be the one who sets up the pillar and pours the oil on it and gives the place its name, Jacob is not the one who makes Bethel a sanctuary. 
God does that. People don't make sanctuaries. God does. A place is not holy because of anything that we might choose to do to it or say about it. A place is holy because God is present in it. And any place may be holy and we probably won't even know it. But this vision that Jacob has of a ladder or or maybe a stairway or maybe a ramp reaching up into the heavens with angels going up and down it, what that vision shows him, what it shows us, is that any place, perhaps every place, becomes holy when God is revealed there. Any place. The lake shore at sunset, sure, but also a a highway overpass during rush hour. Yes, the mountains, and also a back alley. It is the presence of God that renders the places we inhabit and pass through as holy, and we mostly are not aware of it until God opens our eyes and we suddenly become aware. The surgeon, Richard Selzer, described a time when his eyes were opened. He wrote in an essay, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private, Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously and greedily. The young woman speaks, will my my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles, I like it, he says, it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. The surgeon lowers his eyes. Jacob shudders with fear at the awesomeness of what he has seen and he exclaims surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it what about you what would happen to you if you were to realize that God was present and you didn't know it would you get quiet would you shout would you call someone would would you cry friends God is near to us And we do not know it most of the time. God is in this place even when we don't know it. And our not knowing it does not make it any less true. Such knowledge, to borrow words from the psalmist, is too wonderful. It's too wonderful for us. It's too high for us to attain. 
Whatever knowledge or awareness that we have of God at any given moment is given to us by God as a gift. It's grace. It isn't up to us or our intelligence or our spiritual sensitivity to detect and to actualize God's presence in our lives. God is with us. God promises to remain with us whether we know it or not. What I'm working against here is the kind of notion that we have to attain a level of enlightenment or, or moral fitness before God will want to have anything to do with us. A lot of us, I think, are dogged by a sense that we're not religious enough. We don't read our Bible enough. We don't pray enough. We don't give enough. We cuss a little. We cuss a lot. What would God want to have to do with any of us? Well, let me introduce you to Jacob. <laughs> Jacob, patriarch of the faith, is a straight-up shady character. <laughs> Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is dishonest. Jacob spends most of his time scheming to secure his own well-being and future. Jacob's name literally means to supplant because the story of his birth is that he was born clutching the heel of his twin brother. Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Buechner has a great phrase about Jacob that I love. He says, Jacob wanted the moon and if he'd ever managed to bilk heaven out of that, he would have been back the next morning for the stars to go with it. Jacob manipulates his brother into giving up his birthright. Jacob tricks his blind father into giving him the blessing that is rightfully due to his brother. He puts on his brother's clothes and pretends to be him and receives his blessing. Jacob is hustling and scheming from one thing to the next. He gets what he can get and then he gets out. He's always been like this and he's probably always going to be like this. There's a story that comes later in Genesis where Jacob ghosts his father-in-law and makes off with pretty much everything in the house that's not nailed down. What I'm saying is nobody is nominating Jacob to be a church officer. <laughs> and a lot of people aren't sure he should be a member. And yet the gospel is that God is with Jacob and has a purpose for Jacob. And Jacob doesn't even know it. Now that's not to make a model out of Jacob's behavior. Grace does not license badness. But it is to put the spotlight of faith in the right place, which is on the presence of God in any place where we might find ourselves. Not because we did anything to summon it, but simply because God loves us. Jacob's vision locates his life within the life of God, that his life is enfolded within God's. Jacob's life is about what God's life is about because this is the Lord that is speaking to him. The God who first conscripted his grandparents and then his parents into this plot to bless all the families of the earth. That's what this is about. Whatever else is promised here, land, descendants, protection, a homecoming, all of it serves the primary agenda of God blessing the world. Though Jacob never knew it until now, and though he still doesn't seem like a great candidate for the job, this is what his life is now about. It's what the life of the people who are going to follow him will be about as they spread out like the dust of the earth. Blessing the world is what the church's life 
is about. So we have work to do. You heard it from Pastor Nancy already. Women at Fourth are running a school supply drive. The World Mission and Social Justice Council is engaging violence interrupters to reduce gun violence. The Meals Ministry needs Spanish translators. We need beetles and ushers and liturgists for worship, people to help set up communion. We need cookie table hosts, servers, hospitality coordinators for coffee hour. That's all in the news and opportunity section of the bulletin. And it all relates to blessing. It's all part of our job description of the people of God who have been given this vision, God's presence with us, and who have so also received this calling. So let's get to work. Amen? Amen.